Amen. You may be seated. It has been a privilege and an honor to walk through the book of John with you this summer. We find ourselves at the last two of the I Am statements. Uh, We deliver one today and then one next week, and that will conclude our series in John. And as we've been doing so all summer, we're really trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? By letting Jesus himself give us that answer. And through these statements, he said, I am, again and again. Today, we find ourselves that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to explore all of, or at least some of, uh, the reasons that this is important and the benefits thereof. You know, um, a lot of the earlier I am statements were given toward uh, strangers, to Pharisees even. Uh, But as Jesus walks along this path toward the conclusion of his earthly ministry, when he walks toward the cross, he becomes more focused. And we find these last two statements given to the disciples themselves. And there's a reason for that as well. He has a very specific charge that he wants to and needs to give them uh, before he leaves. And we're going to look at what Jesus means by all of these statements um, that he has before us today. But before we do so, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help in understanding his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you realizing um, what a task it is when we come before your word. I pray that we are very sober-minded as we gather for worship, that we are meeting with the Creator God, the Almighty Father, the one who made all things and sustains all things. It is He whom we are in His presence. But I pray that that doesn't cause us to fear, but it causes us to carefully pay attention and to look forward to what you have to say for us. And I pray for the strength as a broken vessel to share your word today. I pray that you speak through me to your people and give us all soft hearts and open ears and open minds that we may receive it. And we ask that you do all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. We'll actually begin um, at the end of chapter 13. Uh, Jesus is giving a, um, a, a speech or a kind of a sermon here uh, that spans a couple of chapters. And so we'll begin in John thirteen thirty-one, and we'll go through our text today that's in your bulletin. Um, you're welcome to follow along there as well. This is the word of the Lord uh, from John beginning in chapter 13. When he had gone out, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where am I going? Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless the hearing of it and place these truths upon all of our hearts. Have you ever found yourself needing to get somewhere you didn't exactly know where it was? Now, I know it's hard to think about in today's time. Um, I'm on the cusp of this uh, being 28, um, 29 in October. Um, Right now, if I asked you to get somewhere, if I told you to go to my house, uh, members, you would go to CCB and you would hold down your finger on our address and you would hit it open in maps. And then it would start telling you the directions You wouldn't have to know them. You wouldn't have to think about them. You would get turn by turn, instantaneous um, directions to where to go, and you would arrive at our house. Now, um, when I was learning to drive, um, we didn't have those luxuries. And even if we did, my father wouldn't have allowed them. Um, He bought me an atlas from 2005 um, when I graduated in 07 and said, Here, son, go find your way. And... Atlases are, are great at giving directions as long as nothing's happened since it was printed. Um, I remember a road trip in particular. I, I forget where I was going, um, but I had mapped everything out and I knew to turn here and to turn here. And I was very focused and narrow-minded. And then there was a road under construction and it was blocked off. Well, what do you do now? I'd only planned for one route. Well, you get out the atlas and you start working, but then the road that I needed wasn't there. And it was just a comedy of errors. Everything I looked for, I could not find. And so, shamefully, I hung my head and found the nearest gas station and said, I am lost. Um, And as men, you know how hard that is for us uh, because we want to always know our way. And this is kind of what's going on here. But to compound the problem even more, um, the disciples don't know how to get there and they don't know where they're going. Wouldn't that make things a lot harder? It's one thing to not know how to get there, but know where you're headed to. It's another thing to not know where you're headed and not know how to get there. They're completely lost, or so they think. And so they act out in in kind of a panic. They they really hear, you can hear the worry in their actions, in their words with Jesus. Jesus, how can we get there? Where are we going? Where are you going? What's going on? This really sets the stage for Jesus' teaching. In fact, the disciples, they wouldn't fully understand all of the concepts Jesus teaches them until after the resurrection. They would hear Jesus give these commands and issue um, these encouragements, and yet it would be after his return that they would fully understand and begin to see what he was saying. But he needed to say them then. 
see where our story takes place, um, the Lord's Supper has already happened and they're marching on their way to the cross. Jesus is walking along that path. Um, some argue, some scholars argue that they are teaching and walking at the same time, that this is a, a kind of sermon on the road, if you will. And so they needed to hear this now. The disciples had spent the better part of three years doing this, walking with Jesus Seeing the miracles, serving with him, eating with him, hearing the teachings, hearing the stories, watching all of it unfold. And yet, they don't understand. They question, where are you going? They wonder how he will get there, and more importantly, how can they get there as well? They want to know, is Jesus leaving for good? Was this just a great three years, and then we go back to fishing and tax collecting and all of the other things we did before? I believe answers to these questions are found in our text today. And in fact, I I believe a lot of us, if we're honest, ask these same questions. Jesus, have you left for good? Are you going to leave things in this state? Really, this is how the world is going to play out? What have you done, God? Have you abandoned us? And... Jesus assures the disciples that, these, that he has answers for these questions. And Jesus will assure us that he has answers for these questions. In fact, he's going to show us that he himself prepares a way for us. And not only that, he is the way for us. And even better, not only does he prepare and he is the way, but he brings us along the way to the end. And I want to encourage you this morning by by seeing these in our text. And let us begin by looking at how Jesus prepares the way for his people. The story opens with a call to Jesus' glory, to the Father's glory. This is why Jesus came. The Father would be glorified. Jesus would be glorified. The people would finally see his mission fulfilled. It says his power His hour had come. He spent most of his ministry saying, My hour is not here. My time is not come. Now we hear it is time. This is why the confession begins. The chief end of man is to glorify God. And what does Jesus say? Now the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified. If God is glorified, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You see, we cannot be called to glorify God and bring God glory if Christ, our Savior, did not do the same. And Christ was prepared to glorify his Father in all that was about to take place. He did so for the Father's glory. And he does so here. He glorifies God by doing what he's done all along, by teaching his people. He glorifies God by his actions. He glorifies God by his words. And Jesus leaves or is preparing to leave and he gives the disciples a commandment. He says in verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. John Calvin in his commentary on this very text. um, Gives some clarity which I think is helpful. Because if you read that you, you come to some logical conclusions. What's new about that? What do you mean we're always supposed to love? Hasn't the command to love been there since the beginning? 
Well, the call to brotherly love for our neighbor, you could go back to the Ten Commandments and the Levitical laws. The Jewish people were told to love the sojourners, for they themselves were sojourners in Egypt. And, and Calvin really helps us out here by reminding us who he is talking to, who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to disciples. He is talking to his followers. And so Jesus is reminding them of the kindness they're to have for one another, for fellow believers, and for people who would become part of the church. We as Christians, we must be in the business of praying for and walking alongside one another. I think far too often we get so wrapped up in bringing one another down or proving our intellectual superiority that uh, we miss the truth that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I look forward to getting to heaven and getting there and seeing people go, wow, they made it in? They're from that denomination. Really? And then I want to, I want to be around, and I'll, honestly, I'll probably be one of those people, and I want to see their face drop going, oh, wow, how did I treat them? How did I interact with them? How did I speak of them? You know, the first time in my life this became painfully true, second year of seminary, um, I was invited out to dinner with some friends, uh, with a friend and his friends. And um, we started talking theology because that's all you talk about in seminary is theology. And they asked me a question, um, what do you think of this author? Now, this author didn't come from the same theological mindset that I was learning. Um, and so I did what any good second year seminary student would do as I'd been taught by my upperclassmen. Um, I tore him apart. Um, I started talking about the fallacies of which he used and the weaknesses in his argument and how this isn't good for youth ministry because it leads to this and this and this conclusion. And I went through and just really, really made sure they knew that he was not a sufficient um, teacher and theologian. And then I asked, why do you ask? Well, he's one of our professors at our, at our school. We're a Bible Christian school and... He teaches there. I was never invited to talk to those people again. Um, they never spoke to me again. They never interacted with me again. And it was the first time that I realized how I talked to others about Christianity. How I interact with others about um, opinions and views that I don't agree with has an impact. Even if I was right, and I'm not convinced that I was... I left a negative mark, a negative reminder to those people, beware of those reformed. Beware of those that hold to reformed theology because they're going to attack you and beat you down. And they're going to make sure you know that you're wrong and they're not going to be satisfied until you agree that they're right. And I, I shudder at the effect that that has. And I don't know. I don't know what effect that had. Um, but that stayed with me to this day. And so when Jesus says, love one another here, when Calvin reminds us, love one another, we must do so. And not just us here together. I mean the broader Christian world as well. And yes, we need to be discerning. And yes, we need to be people of the truth. But we need to do so in love. Don't forget what Calvin is pointing out here and what Jesus himself was saying. Love one another, not just those that agree with you. But I think that Jesus goes even further here. I think that he's not just concerned with love for one another. 
Um, because still, that's not really new. That's not really a new commandment, is it? I think where he's really wanting us to focus is we are to love one another as I loved you. To me, this is the new part. To me, this is what Jesus was really trying to emphasize. D.A. Carson says in his commentary of this text, the new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet it is profound enough that the most mature believer is repeatedly embarrassed at how poor they comprehend it and put it into practice. The disciples had been walking with Jesus step for step for step. They saw how he loved. They watched him care for Samaritans, for adulterers, for tax collectors, for sinners, for people that no one else would deal with, for lep- with lepers. Jesus loved people not based on what they could contribute, on their background, on their ethnicity, on anything, on their health. Instead, he loved with an honest, genuine love that always gave glory to his Father. And Jesus calls the disciples to love like Jesus did. Love one another as I loved you. That is the commandment I leave you with. Love them like I loved you. And he, they saw it. They walked with him. They watched him love. They watched him care for others. He was paving the way. He was preparing them to love just like he loved. And he We are blessed. We have the completed word of God. 66 books tell one story of God's love for his people. But there's also a problem. If you read those 66 books, you read the Old Testament and you read of God's faithfulness to his people and their their lack of faithfulness toward him. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels and realize that it was one of the disciples who betrayed Christ, spent three years with him, watched the miracles, heard the teachings, step for step for step, and yet betrayed him. Then read the rest of the New Testament and hear the implications of that. Watch in the book of Acts, the church start, and then watch all throughout the rest of Scripture instruction on how we should live in light of what's been done. And then I dare you to come to any conclusion other than there's no way. There's no way I can love as Jesus loved. There is no way I can do what he did. I can't care for others like he did. I can't give that much. I can't share that much. I simply cannot. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's really heartbreaking to hear God's commands and hear what God tells us to do. To see Jesus love unconditionally and say, do just like I did. And then to go, there's no way. There are two texts in Scripture that that calls me great um, reverent fear. The one is the calling of Isaiah, but the second hits a little closer to home. It was probably mentioned to some of you men at your wedding. It certainly was to mine. It was my charge. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
really? That's my charge? Can I find a second opinion? Can I look for something else? There's no way. I'm selfish. I want to do things that please me. I want to take care of myself and let Lisa take care of Ethan and then go do my own thing. There's a lot of times that that's true of me. And I know that. Like he loved the church? Are you sure? God calls me to love love like Christ and I don't want to. Jesus died for the church. Men, you realize that's what we're called to. That's what we've been given. But he doesn't leave us there. He knew that that would be a problem, a hesitation, a struggle. And yet he doesn't back up on his word. He doesn't, you know, hesitate with what he is saying. He goes right ahead. Yes and amen. I did tell you to do that and I do ask you to follow it. Because not only did Jesus prepare the way for us, Jesus is the way for us. You can hear the pastoral care in Jesus' words at the beginning of 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus knew what he was saying was troubling the disciples. Think about this. He was marching to the cross Step for step, growing one moment closer to his crucifixion and his bearing the weight of the sin of all people, all of all his people upon that cross. And yet he cannot help but stop and care for his disciples, his hurting, confused, poor disciples. He says, trust in God and trust in me. And he comforts them by saying, this is where I'm going Here is where I am headed. And this confirms several things for the disciples. If he's going there, he knows where he's going. He's most likely been there before. It's hard to know somewhere, know how to get somewhere if you've never been. He could get in. He had access. All of these things that the disciples were struggling with, those questions that they were asking, Jesus had answers for. He was calling them to believe that he would do what he's been saying all along that he would do. And there's one point here in particular that I really don't want you to miss. We saw this in a couple of the other I am statements and see it here as well. And that's the topic of assurance. Assurance is by far the most asked topic, asked about topic I've had um, in ministry. Students, adults, elderly, children... All, how can I know? How can I be assured? Tell me that God loves me. Remind me that it is real. Remind me that he will not give up on me. Jesus says in verse 2, to that question, or to those concerns, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He had a plan. Thomas, bless Thomas. Thomas is quick to do what we were thinking. Thomas, I think, is in this instance, is one of the most human disciples. Because he asks, how can we get there? How can we go? We don't know the way. Jesus has been trying to tell them the way ever since he started his ministry. Ever since he started his walk with them. 
But he has to plainly state it, and he does. He plainly states it here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we have answers. Jesus is going to the Father. We know where he is going. He's leaving us and going there. He has the authority and the credentials to get into his Father's house. He will not be treated as an outsider. He will be warmly welcomed. This is great news for us. The problem that we realized in point one is solved in point two. Jesus prepares the way and sets a standard that we have no chance of reaching on our own. And then he completes and accomplishes that standard on our behalf. He doesn't have to earn his way into his father's house. He already has it. D.A. Carson once again says of this statement, Jesus is the way of God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Only because he is the truth and the life can he be considered the way. The only reason Jesus can be trusted is because he is true. The only way he can provide life is if he accomplishes what he says he does. He has to be the way for us to have life. And those things can only be accomplished if he is truth. We, on our own, we have this great problem. We couldn't make it to God's house on our own. We don't know the way. We couldn't keep up the path. And even if we could get there, we wouldn't make it past the doorman. We're not dressed appropriately. We are not wearing the right attire to get in. God's standard is perfect obedience for living in his presence. Let's take a few moments to take a case study to see this lived out. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. Were cast out of the garden. Cast out of God's presence. One sin banned them from direct contact with God. God's perfection and their sinfulness could not coexist together. Isaiah Isaiah had a vision of what was taking place. He wasn't even physically there. And listen to what happens to Isaiah. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. John would have a similar encounter in the book of Revelation. Pastor Dunning preached from there last week. In Revelation chapter 1, he has a vision. And listen to what happens in his vision. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. To be in God's presence, one must be righteous. For none can stand in his presence and live except those that are righteous. We cannot do it on our own. Notice the similarities between these two texts. Did either of these men earn their way to God? Did they earn righteousness before him? Did they even ask God to make them righteous? Did they present something? Did they come to God? Here you go, God. Now you can make me righteous. No. They fell on their faces 
Woe is me, I am like a dead man before the king. I have seen you, I cannot live. Isaiah had to be touched by the coals of the fire, signifying a cleansing and purification. John himself had to be touched by Christ and declared righteous. These men did not deserve it, they did not earn it. It was given to them by God himself. When we stand in God's presence, we have to realize this must be true of us. God made them clean. He declared them holy. Jesus does the same for his people. When Jesus says, I am the way, he is saying, I have done the work. I have taken the sin of my people. I have paid the price. When he states, no one comes to the Father except through me, I think far too often we read that in the negative, hear it in the positive. You may have access to the Father through me. We have access because of Christ. To use a weak analogy, Jesus isn't just giving us directions and calling a cab of which we have no choice or chance of paying the fare. No, Jesus is calling a cab, paying the cab driver, getting, letting the cab driver get out. He's getting in and taking us there himself having paid it on his own. He is the means with which we have access to the Father. Because his word is true, we have life. I think one of the greatest examples of this reality in Scripture happens immediately after Jesus' death. In Matthew's account, we find these words, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. At that moment, at that instance, the curtain was torn. It was ripped in two from top to bottom. What was that curtain guarding? God's presence. That curtain separated the temple from the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. You see, no one could go in there with the exception of one person, a high priest, once a year, had to take care of themselves, had to make sure that they were prepared they would tie a rope around their waist and they would go in backwards to sprinkle blood upon the altar. Why did they have to tie a rope around their waist, you might ask? Because if they didn't have their sin covered by that blood, they would die. And no one could go in to get them, so they needed a way to drag them out. And so they made sure that God's presence was protected, was set apart was holy and when Jesus dies at that moment the temple curtain is torn saying you now have access you no longer need a mediator because I am the mediator I stand between you and the father and if you are my child you can come to him now because of me that is great news that is great news for us but it also would be an incomplete picture if we stopped there Far too many people think that Christianity is conversion and that's it. Far too many people think that we thank Jesus for what he's done and we look forward to heaven. But in the meantime, we just work hard and we just make sure to get our best foot forward so that we can be toward the front of the line when we get there. But Christ doesn't leave us there either. You see another potential problem. He already has a solution in place. Jesus tells us that he is not just the way, but he brings us all the way to the finish. Look again at our text. Um, Jesus knows that we, just like the disciples, need assurance. Just like Thomas, who honestly 
speaks his frustration. We need to hear what happens in verses 18 to 21 toward the end of this part of the discussion. Listen to this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Listen to the declarative statements. Let me read it again. And think about the disciples. Think about the questions, the worries, the concerns, the burden that Jesus just put on them. And listen to what he says to them even in light of that. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you in me and I in you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus will either do what he says or he's a liar and we should throw it all out. He's already told us that he is truth and can be trusted. And so because he is truth, these words and phrases are true. When Jesus says, I will not leave you, I will come get you, I will take care of you, you will be part of my family, you will be known to my Father and will be loved by Him, then that's a yes and amen. It's done. It's accomplished. It's completed. And I really don't want you to miss this. As grand as that is, think about this. The disciples spent three years with Jesus Himself face to face, slept in the same room, shared the same food, ate, walked, lived with Jesus. They saw the miracles. They saw and heard the teachings. They watched Him. They participated. And yet they still needed assurance. Why do we get so worked up when we wonder, will God do what He's going to do? Why do we question so much, God, will you save us? Why do we get so worked up on this matter? Let me help you just like Jesus helped them. Let me read this again and listen, because this is God's word for you. Listen to what God says to you when you ask those questions. Are you coming back? Have you left the world in this state? Is life fair? Is there a purpose to it? Is it all worth it, God? This is what Jesus says to those questions. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You will see me. Because I live, you will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus not only shows us the way and is the way, he brings us all along the way. He doesn't leave it up to us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He is praying daily on our behalf as our great high priest, as that mediator. And has promised he will bring us to himself when he comes. Jesus will see it through to the end. And doesn't that make life a little more worth living? Doesn't that soften the edges on the catastrophes and on the heartaches and on the difficult times and moments? Doesn't that make it just a little easier to bear? 
not making them go away, but realizing that there is something greater that we're looking forward to. Last week, Pastor Nathan called my attention to an old Keith Green song that reminds me of the comfort I find in this I Am statement. I won't sing it, but here are the lyrics. Seaside sunsets, silver linings round the clouds, birds fly singing, making such a joyful sound. Thoughts of heaven somehow seem to fill my mind, but I can't even imagine what it is I'm going to find. I can't wait to get to heaven when you'll wipe away all my fears. And this is the line that got me. In six days, you created everything, and you've been working on heaven for 2,000 years. The best day on earth can't even touch heaven. This world is marred by the same sin that plagues you and I. And we've had some good days here, some beautiful sunrises, some wonderful pictures of God's glory displayed. But there's joy to be had in the meantime. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not I will be. He is that now. Walk in that truth. Walk alongside. Walk with Christ. Be comforted. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus gave his own life for his children, we have life. Not just a crummy American dream life. If that's what you're aiming for, you're shooting way too low. Jesus is that life. Remember the standard that we talked about at the beginning? He's calling us to that and saying, through me, you be that and you can be that and you will be that. Because he is truth, he can be trusted. He is the way to his Father, providing us access and making sure that we get there. Praise God for the commitment to his people. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, sin creates such a great problem. Your word shows that to us, and yet you don't change what you said My standard is perfection. I call you to live perfectly, to love perfectly, to honor me and to honor one another. We can't do it. We can't keep it up. We are too selfish. We are too sinful. We desire ourselves far too often. But you didn't leave us there. Our sin created a problem that you solved. You sent your son Christ who lived a perfect life on our behalf. For those who are his children, we might be declared righteous. I thank you for that. I thank you that you didn't just stop there, but you also promised that I will walk with you all along the way until the end when I come and make all things new, when I restore this world, when I make it as it once was, even better than it once was. And I look forward to that day. Lord, give me the assurance that I need to walk through the peaks and valleys of this life. Give us all the comfort through the difficult times and the hard moments because you have prepared the way for us. You are the way for us and you will bring us all the way home. Thank you for these things and we ask them now in the name of Christ, our mediator, who daily on our behalf is praying to the Father. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 308. I invite you to take your hymnals. Please stand and sing together. Jesus paid it all. We'll sing verses 1 and 2.